Section 52 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt to Part 8. The Reinhardt's little house was gemutlich like themselves. It was a rather chattering gemut, a gemut with inscriptions. The furniture, the utensils, the china, all talked, and went on repeating their joy in seeing their charming guest, asked after his health, and gave him pleasant and virtuous advice. On the sofa, which was very hard, was a little cushion which murmured amiably, Only a quarter of an hour, nur ein Viertelstundchen. The cup of coffee which was handed to Christoph insisted on his taking more. Just a drop, nach ein schluchchen the plates seasoned the cooking with morality and otherwise the cooking was quite excellent one plate said think of everything otherwise no good will come to you another affection and gratitude please everybody ingratitude pleases nobody although christophe did not smoke the ash-tray on the mantelpiece insisted on introducing itself to him a little resting place for burning cigars. Ruhe Plätzchen verbrennende Zigarren. He wanted to wash his hands. The soap on the washstand said, For our charming guest, for unseren lieben Gast. And the sententious towel, like a person who has nothing to say, but thinks he must say something all the same, gave him this reflection, full of good sense, but not very apposite, that, to enjoy the morning you must rise early. Morgenstund hat gold im Mund. At length Christoph dared not even turn in his chair, for fear of hearing himself addressed by other voices coming from every part of the room. He wanted to say, Be silent, you little monsters, we don't understand each other. And he burst out laughing crazily, and then tried to explain to his host and hostess that he was thinking of the gathering at the school. He would not have hurt them for the world, and he was not very sensible of the ridiculous. Very soon he grew accustomed to the loquacious cordiality of these people and their belongings. He could have tolerated anything in them. They were so kind. They were not tiresome either. If they had no taste, they were not lacking in intelligence. They were a little lost in the place to which they had come. The intolerable susceptibilities of the little provincial town did not allow people to enter it, as though it were a mill, without having properly asked for the honor of becoming part of it. The Reinhardts had not sufficiently attended to the provincial code which regulated the duties of new arrivals in the town towards those who had settled in it before them. Reinhardt would have submitted to it mechanically, but his wife, to whom such drudgery was oppressive, she disliked being put out, postponed her duties from day to day. She had selected those calls which bored her least, to be paid first, or she had put the others off indefinitely. The distinguished persons who were comprised in the last category choked with indignation at such a want of respect. Angelica Reinhardt, her husband called her Lily, was a little free in her manners. She could not take on the official tone. She would address her superiors in the hierarchy familiarly and make them go red in the face with indignation, and, if need be, she was not afraid of contradicting them. She had a quick tongue, 
and always had to say whatever was in her head. Sometimes she made extraordinarily foolish remarks, at which people laughed behind her back, and also she could be malicious wholeheartedly, and that made her mortal enemies. She would bite her tongue as she was saying rash things, and wish she had not said them. But it was too late. Her husband, the gentlest and most respectful of men, would chide her timidly about it. She would kiss him and say that she was a fool and that he was right. But the next moment she would break out again, and she would always say things at the least suitable moment. She would have burst if she had not said them. She was exactly the sort of woman to get on with Christophe. Among the many ridiculous things which she ought not to have said, and consequently was always saying, was her trick of perpetually comparing the way things were done in Germany and the way they were done in France. She was a German, nobody more so, but she had been brought up in Alsace among French Alsatians, and she had felt the attraction of Latin civilization which so many Germans in the annexed countries, even those who seem the least likely to feel it, cannot resist. Perhaps, to tell the truth, the attraction had become stronger out of a spirit of contradiction since Angelica had married a North German and lived with him in purely German society. She opened up her usual subject of discussion on her first evening with Christophe. She loved the pleasant freedom of conversation in France. Christophe echoed her. France to him was Corinne. Bright blue eyes, smiling lips, frank free manners, a musical voice— he loved to know more about it. Lily Reinhardt clapped her hands on finding herself so thoroughly agreeing with Christophe. "'It is a pity,' she said, "'that my little French friend has gone. But she could not stand it. She has gone.' The image of Corinne was at once blotted out, as a match going out suddenly makes the gentle glimmer of the stars shine out from the dark sky. Another image and other eyes appeared. "'Who?' asked Christophe with a start. The little governess? What? said Frau Reinhardt. You knew her too? He described her. The two portraits were identical. You knew her? repeated Christophe. Oh, tell me everything you know about her. Frau Reinhardt began by declaring that they were bosom friends and had no secrets from each other, but when she had to go into detail her knowledge was reduced to very little. They had met out calling. Frau Reinhardt had made advances to the girl, and with her usual cordiality had invited her to come and see her. The girl had come two or three times, and they had talked. But the curious Lily had not so easily succeeded in finding out anything about the life of the little Frenchwoman. The girl was very reserved. She had had to worm her story out of her bit by bit. Frau Reinhardt knew that she was called Antoinette Janine. She had no fortune and no friends, except a younger brother who lived in Paris and to whom she was devoted. She used always to talk of him. He was the only subject about which she could talk freely, and Lily Reinhardt had gained her confidence by showing sympathy and pity for the boy living alone in Paris without relations, without friends, at a boarding school. It was partly to pay for his education that Antoinette had accepted a post abroad but the two children could not live without each other. They wanted to be with each other every day, and the least delay in the delivery of their letters used to make them quite ill with anxiety. 
Antoinette was always worrying about her brother. The poor child could not always manage to hide his sadness and loneliness from her. Every one of his complaints used to sound through Antoinette's heart and seemed like to break it. The thought that he was suffering used to torture her, and she used often to imagine that he was ill and would not say so. Frau Reinhardt, in her kindness, had often had to rebuke her for her groundless fears, and she used to succeed in restoring her confidence for a moment. She had not been able to find out anything about Antoinette's family or position or her inner self. The girl was wildly shy and used to draw into herself at the first question. The little she said showed that she was cultured and intelligent. She seemed to have a precocious knowledge of life. She seemed to be at once naive and undeceived, pious and disillusioned. She had not been happy in the town in a tactless and unkind family. She used not to complain, but it was easy to see that she used to suffer. Frau Reinhardt did not exactly know why she had gone. It had been said that she had behaved badly. Angelica did not believe it. She was ready to swear that it was all a disgusting calumny, worthy of the foolish rotten town. But there had been stories. It did not matter what, did it? No, said Christophe, bowing his head. And so she has gone. And what did she say? Anything to you when she went? Ah, said Lily Reinhardt, I had no chance. I had gone to Cologne for a few days just then. When I came back, Zuspet, too late. She stopped to scold her maid, who had brought her lemon too late for her tea. And she added sententiously with the solemnity which the true German brings naturally to the performance of the familiar duties of daily life, too late, as one so often is in life. It was not clear whether she meant the lemon or her interrupted story. She went on. When I returned, I found a line from her thanking me for all I had done, and telling me that she was going. She was returning to Paris. She gave no address. And she did not write again? Not again. Once more Christophe saw her sad face disappear into the night. Once more he saw her eyes for a moment, just as he had seen them for the last time looking at him through the carriage window. The enigma of France was once more set before him more insistently than ever. Christophe never tired of asking Frau Reinhardt about the country which she pretended to know so well, and Frau Reinhardt, who had never been there, was not reluctant to tell him about it. Reinhardt, a good patriot, full of prejudices against France, which he knew better than his wife, sometimes used to qualify her remarks when her enthusiasm went too far, but she would repeat her assertions only the more vigorously, and Christophe, knowing nothing at all about it, backed her up confidently. What was more precious even than Lily Reinhardt's memories were her books. She had a small library of French books, school books, a few novels, a few volumes bought at random. Christophe, greedy of knowledge and ignorant of France, thought them a treasure when Reinhardt went and got them for him and put them at his disposal. He began with volumes of select passages, old school books, which had been used by Lily Reinhardt or her husband in their school days. Reinhardt had assured him that he must begin with them if he wished to find his way about French literature, which was absolutely unknown to him. Christophe was full of respect for those who knew more than himself, 
and obeyed religiously, and that very evening he began to read. He tried, first of all, to take stock of the riches in his possession. He made the acquaintance of certain French writers, namely Théodore Henri Barrault, François Petit de la Croix, Frédéric Baudry, Émile Delarot, Charles-Auguste Désiré Filon, Samuel de Combat, and Prosper Bauer. He read the poetry of Abbe Joseph Grier, Pierre La Chambaudie, the Duke de Nivernois, André van Asselt, Andrieu, Madame Collet, Constance Marie, Princesse de Sandic, Henrietta Ollard, Gabriel Jean-Baptiste Ernest Wilfried Legouvet, Hippolyte Violot, Jean Reboul, Jean Racine, Jean de Béranger, Frédéric Béchard, Gustave Nadeau, Édouard Plouvier, Eugène Manuel, Hugo, Millevoix, Chenedolet, James Lacour de l'Artre, Félix Chavannes, Francis Edouard Joachim, known as Francois Copy, and Louis Belmonte. Christophe was lost, drowned, submerged under such a deluge of poetry, and turned to prose. He found Gustave de Molinari, Fléchier, Ferdinand Edouard Buisson, Mérimy, Maltbrun, Voltaire, Lamé Fleury, Dumas Père, Gégé Bousseau, Mézières, Mirabeau, de Mazade, Clareti, Cortambert, Frédéric de, and Monsieur de Vogue. The most often quoted of French historians was Maximilien Samson Frédéric Chol. In the French anthology, Christophe found the proclamation of the new German Empire and he read a description of the Germans by Frédéric Constant de Rougemont, in which he learned that the German was born to live in the region of the soul. He has not the light, noisy gaiety of the Frenchman. His is a great soul. His affections are tender and profound. He is indefatigable in toil and persevering in enterprise. There is no more moral or long-lived people. Germany has an extraordinary number of writers. She has the genius of art. While the inhabitants of other countries pride themselves on being French, English, Spanish, the German, on the other hand, embraces all humanity in his love. And though its position is the very center of Europe, the German nation seems to be at once the heart and the higher reason of humanity. Christophe closed the book. He was astonished and tired. He thought, the French are good fellows, but they are not strong. He took another volume. It was on a higher plane. It was meant for high schools. Mousset occupied three pages, and Victor Duré, thirty. Lamartine, seven pages, and Thiers, almost forty. The whole of the Cid was included, or almost the whole. Ten monologues of Don Diego and Rodriga had been suppressed because they were too long. Lanfrey exalted Prussia against Napoleon I, and so he had not been cut down. He alone occupied more space than all the great classics of the eighteenth century. Copious narrations of the French defeats of 1870 had been extracted from La Dibacle of Zola. Neither Montaigne, nor La Rochefoucauld, nor La Bruyère, nor Diderot, nor Stendhal, nor Balzac, 
nor Flaubert appeared. On the other hand, Pascal, who did not appear in the other book, found a place in this as a curiosity, and Christophe learned by the way that the convulsionary was one of the fathers of Port Royal, a girls' school near Paris. Footnote. The anthologies of French literature which Jean-Christophe borrowed from his friends the Reinhardts were 1. Selected French Passages for the Use of Secondary Schools by Hubert H. Wingerath, Ph.D., Director of the Real School of St. John at Strasbourg. Part 2. Middle Forms, 7th edition, 1902, Dumont Schauberg. 2. L. Herrig and G. F. Bourgui, Literary France, arranged by F. Tendering, Director of the Real Gymnasium of the Johanneum, Hamburg, 1904, Brunswick. Christophe was on the point of throwing the book away. His head was swimming. He could not see. He said to himself, I shall never get through with it. He could not formulate any opinion. He turned over the leaves idly for hours without knowing what he was reading. He did not read French easily, and when he had labored to make out a passage, it was almost always something meaningless and highfalutin. And yet from the chaos there darted flashes of light, like rapier thrusts, words that looked and stabbed heroic laughter. Gradually an impression emerged from his first reading, perhaps through the biased scheme of the selections. Voluntarily or involuntarily the German editors had selected those pieces of French which could seem to establish by the testimony of the French themselves the failings of the French and the superiority of the Germans. But they had no notion that what they most exposed to the eyes of an independent mind like Christophe's was the surprising liberty of these Frenchmen who criticized everything in their own country and praised their adversaries. Michelet praised Frederick II, Lanfray, the English of Trafalgar, Charat, the Prussia of 1813. No enemy of Napoleon had ever dared to speak of him so harshly. Nothing was too greatly respected to escape their disparagement. Even under the great king the previous poets had had their freedom of speech. Molière spared nothing. La Fontaine laughed at everything. Even Boileau jibed at the nobles. Voltaire derided war, flogged religion, scoffed at his country. Moralists, satirists, pamphleteers, comic writers, they all vied one with another in gay or somber audacity. Want of respect was universal. The honest German editors were sometimes scared by it. They had to throw a rope to their consciences by trying to excuse Pascal, who lumped together cooks, porters, soldiers, and camp followers. They protested in a note that Pascal would not have written thus if he had been acquainted with the noble armies of modern times. They did not fail to remind the reader how happily Lessing had corrected the fables of La Fontaine by following, for instance, the advice of the Genovese Rousseau and changing the piece of cheese of Master Crow to a piece of poisoned meat of which the vile fox dies. May you never gain anything but poison, you cursed flatterers. They blinked at naked truth, but Christophe was pleased with it. He loved this light. Here and there he was even a little shocked. 
He was not used to such unbridled independence, which looks like anarchy to the eyes even of the freest of Germans, who in spite of everything is accustomed to order and discipline. And he was led astray by the way of the French. He took certain things too seriously, and other things which were implacable denials seemed to him to be amusing paradoxes. No matter. Surprised or shocked, he was drawn on little by little. He gave up trying to classify his impressions. He passed from one feeling to another. He lived. The gaiety of the French stories, Chamfort, Ségur, Dumas, Père, Mermi, all lumped together, delighted him. And every now and then, in gusts, there would creep forth from the printed page the wild, intoxicating scent of the revolutions. It was nearly dawn when Louisa, who slept in the next room, woke up and saw the light through the chinks of Christophe's door. She knocked on the wall and asked if he were ill. A chair creaked on the floor. The door opened and Christophe appeared, pale, in his nightgown, with a candle and a book in his hand, making strange, solemn, and grotesque gestures. Louisa was in terror and got up in her bed, thinking that he was mad. He began to laugh, and waving his candle, he declaimed a scene from Moliere. In the middle of a sentence, he gurgled with laughter. He sat at the foot of his mother's bed to take breath. The candle shook in his hand. Louisa was reassured and scolded him forcibly. "'What is the matter with you? What is it? Go to bed. My poor boy, are you going out of your senses?' But he began again. "'You must listen to this.' and he sat by her bedside and read the play, going back to the beginning again. He seemed to see Corinne. He heard her mocking tones, cutting and sonorous. Louisa protested, "'Go away! Go away! You will catch cold! How tiresome you are! Let me go to sleep!' He went on relentlessly. He raised his voice, waved his arms, choked with laughter, and he asked his mother if she did not think it wonderful." Louisa turned her back on him, buried herself in the bedclothes, stopped her ears, and said, "'Do leave me alone!' But she laughed inwardly at hearing his laugh. At last she gave up protesting, and when Christophe had finished the act, and asked her, without eliciting any reply, if she did not think what he had read interesting, he bent over her and saw that she was asleep. Then he smiled gently kissed her hair, and stole back to his own room. End of section 52